This is the Work Minus Podcast, where we talk about what we need to drop from how we work today and transformative ideas to help you build a better workplace. To hear all of our episodes and read articles about how you can improve your workplace, go to workminus.com. Today, our guest is Aaron Dignan. He's the founder at The Ready and author of the recently released book, Brave New Work. And this episode is Work Minus Bureaucracy. Hi, Aaron. How are you today? I'm great. Well, I'm extremely excited to talk to you because this new book is very exciting. Um, it's called Brave New Work, which is a fitting title for it. But why don't you start off just telling us a little bit about who you are and what led you to write the book? Well, I um, have worked in kind of some parts of change my whole career. Uh, and I'm, you know, a serial entrepreneur. So I've had the pleasure of starting, you know, and, and trying to figure out lots of different organizations and cultures. Um, and over the course of that journey, just become more and more uh, interested in what does it look like to build something that doesn't become bureaucratic and immobilized and full of red tape and, you know, dehumanizing? Um, how do you build something that's adaptive and human? So that's, that's sort of become my, my personal purpose. Uh, and I wrote the book to try to jumpstart that a little bit in culture. A lot of these ideas have been around for a long time, um, but they haven't really moved from the fringe into the mainstream. And I wanted to, to help promote that movement. So how do you define bureaucracy? For me, uh, it's really, I mean, you know, in a, in a classical sense, bureaucracy is just having um, an organization or, or a community that's governed by the rule of law and that has positions that have power. Um, but I think what it's become, what it's metastasized into is kind of uh, the over-indexing on hierarchy, red tape, um, rules, policies, things that bind us uh, and make us feel feel less than human or less than, um, you know, kind of adaptive and agile. And so, uh, yeah, to me, bureaucracy is all the policies and processes and structures that don't serve us. So I come from a kind of a software background, and you use an interesting term in your book. You talk about legacy organizations. We usually talk about legacy systems. Old systems are just hard to, to build on top of for software. But tell us more about what you mean by a legacy organization. I think that's the right connection. I mean, anything that is, um, you know, no longer allowing us to evolve in the way we want to evolve, whether that's code or whether that's the, you know, the organization's operating system, as I call it. Um, if it's if it's rooted in something past and it can't uh, adapt to what's changed in the world around it, then that's problematic. I, I call it organizational debt. So kind of similar to the technical debt concept that you're familiar with. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's all it's all the it's all the things that we've either decided and put in place that are no longer working for us, or things that we maybe punted on making a decision about, and now they're coming back to to bite us. So I want to take some time to look at both examples here, because in your book you have a lot of really exciting examples of, of companies who are doing things very different, very what you know we would call it forward thinking, but maybe they've been doing it for twenty years, and then also to reflect on some things that are are really dragging us down, and kind of the theme of our show, work minus what we're, we're talking about. So why don't you start with the bright side? What are some of the fun stories and ones you really like to tell about organizations are really operating on a different level? Well, there's so many. I mean, when I when I started the book, I really started looking and I, I knew of, you know, a dozen or more. And I ended up finding, I think, close to 70 firms around the world that have basically, you know, kind of done the work minus bureaucracy thing um, and focused on, you know, autonomy and transparency and, you know, creating an environment where people feel like they have agency to change how they work and, and choose how they work. 
Um, so, you know, everything from uh, an organization in France called Fabi that is an auto parts, um, you know, brass foundry. And they have created these little mini factories where teams gather around, you know, 10, 20, 30 people and kind of work towards one customer's outcomes with total autonomy to Morningstar in California, which is the world's largest tomato processor where people you know, write their own job descriptions and set their own salaries, um, to Bertsorg in the Netherlands, where nurses work without the traditional oversight of the healthcare system with all the rules, boundaries, and limitations, and just actually get to serve their customers as a calling, and all their outcomes are as good or better than the sort of more traditional healthcare systems, um, to a nuclear submarine that you know was the lowest performing one in the Navy until the commander started asking people what they intended to do instead of giving them orders um, and turned it into, you know, one of the top performers. So that, you know, the stories were super wide and varied from almost every country, from almost every culture, uh, almost every industry. What was hard actually was to find more than one in any industry mm. that was really going as far as these. So that's what I'm hoping the book might, you know, promote. But, um, but there was always one, there was always someone out there doing it differently. And, and they, um, you know, they basically had built these firms all around the idea of, People can be trusted. They can be, you know, given responsibility, given autonomy, given agency. Um, they can create, you know, a new way of working together if we trust them to do it and and create the right conditions. And I think that that theme of autonomy is really coming out very strong. That the people, if you give them the power, if you give them the choice to make these, they will end up making a good choice in that. You, in the book, you use the metaphor of the difference between like a stoplight and a roundabout system that comes through. Can you unpack that a little more? Yeah. So I love this metaphor. Um, because it helps you really see the power of an operating system, of the assumptions and principles and practices that we put into place. Um, so the you know the the roundabout and the and the lighted intersection are two different solutions to a problem. The problem is you know two roads crossing, and the, and what we want to do is design for optimum throughput while making sure that people don't hit each other. So the assumption of the of the stoplight, the red, yellow, green, is people can't really be trusted. They need to be told what to do. We're going to have to have really clear signals. We're going to have to think of everything. So left turns, right turns. You know, what if what if this happens? What if that happens? We're going to have to have a control center with software and people making algorithms and plans for how this is all going to work. Um, and and then you know, in the end, it'll it'll do what it needs to do. And most people are pretty comfortable with that. They, you know, they feel good in in a lighted intersection. Um, the the roundabout, on the other hand, takes a different tack. It says actually people can be trusted. They they need to use their judgment. They need to be present in the situation and and participate. Um, they need to be on. And we'll just use a couple simple rules, some very simple enabling constraints to guide behavior. So go with the flow of traffic and give ra- the right of way to people in the roundabout. Um, and what's fascinating is. You know, on almost every measure, in almost every context, not every possible one, but in almost every context, on every measure, things like throughput, um, you know, safety, uh, fatality collision safety, cost to build and maintain, and certainly, you know, how it works when the power goes out, the roundabout is far superior. And yet, we're so much more comfortable, and the other one is so much more prevalent, right? So there's a thousand to one lighted intersections to roundabouts in the United States, for example. Um, and I think that's a perfect metaphor for the world of work right now. There's a true, tried and true way. There's the sort of normal way that everybody knows that mostly puts us off the hook and makes us forced to be you know, compliant and kind of live under the control of a system. And then there are roundabout ways to do budgeting, to do resource allocation, to do hiring, and to do you know compensation and to do planning. Um, and those roundabout ways seem a little bit scarier. They seem a little bit more chaotic at first. But at second glance, as I took in the book, um, they work great. We just have to sort of step into that space and and you know be brave. So, what do you say to a manager, someone who's out there who 
is in one of these traditional systems, looks forward and says, okay, maybe this could be better, but they, they think, okay, the second I go on vacation, if I'm gone for two days, everything just falls apart. If I, if I try to put together a process, if I try to put together a spreadsheet, immediately, if I'm not on it all the time, it starts to degrade. Um, how do you convince someone that has those experience that these autonomous ways of, of working are better? Well, that's what's so counterintuitive about, about it, right? So if you, you know, yes, if you're always micromanaging, if you're doing that labor, both emotional and cognitive, then there might be a learned helplessness in the system. There might be a reaction in the system. And so, sure, if you go away and you've usually been the one that moves things forward, then things might not move forward. I think the, the twist is what happens when you create space and you actually intentionally create space and let uh, things get a little bit heated and let things bubble up and let the tensions emerge, then do people start to step in? And it's, you know, it's like anything, whether you're gardening or raising children, you know, if you try to raise a child who never skins their knee, they will not run well, you know, that's just not going to happen. And so um, I think in many cases, we actually immobilize our teams by being such good leaders and such good managers and such detail oriented thinkers and trying to create, you know, perfect execution instead of saying, what if our job was to create increasing capability? If our job was to create increasing capability, we might take a different tack. And I think, that's, you know, that's one of the things we have to get comfortable with before we can really play differently. Yeah, that's amazing. As we said before, let's look at the other side of the picture, uh, the one that probably most of us are more familiar with in terms of these old legacy operating systems. Do you feel like the opposite is true, that it's all about the removal of autonomy and uh, the giving of, of systems? This is how you do it. This is exactly how you need to do it that, that characterizes most of these, or do you find other patterns as well? I think it just boils down to our characterization of, of organizations in the market. So because we like to think of organizations in the market as predictable and controllable, um, and we like the feeling of being in control is so, is so nice, things like plans and annual budgets and annual performance reviews and hierarchies and fixed roles and you know, all these things start to take on a patina of that ideology. Um, so, so the reason that it kind of goes bad is not because we have bad intentions or because we want to, you know, control people or we want to somehow like, you know, go to a dark place with power. Maybe a few do, but most don't, um, you know, it's actually just because we're trying to do our best, but we're treating the system like something that is not what it actually is. So we're sort of, we're mistaking what the system is and we're mistaking what the market is as something that we need to plan around and predict and control and create compliance in order to get what we want. Um, when in fact, we need the exact opposite. We need everyone out there being a sensor. We need everyone out there adapting in ways big and small. We need you know, as much test and learn and iteration as possible to make sense of the world um, because it is dynamic, because it's changing so, so you know, rapidly. Um, the, the correct approach is actually different. And so that's, I think that's really at the heart of it. I want to get your opinion on as we move farther into the future, we adapt more technology into what we're doing this idea of the human-computer symbiosis becomes more important about how humans and, and systems will work together. And from a manager's perspective, from a CEO's perspective, you talked, use the word uh, building capability, thinking about the fact that if you have humans working for you, you need to start to probably very seriously think about how to leverage those human talents they have, which is about the capabilities they have to make their own decisions and to go through things. And if, if it's a system, you need to figure out how to code that and program that. What is your take about how organizations can do that as they move towards the future? Well, a couple of things. So the first is that, you know, 
once again, the work itself is going to fall into different categories and contexts. So if there's work that we are doing, that you're doing, that a team is doing that is complicated, that can be broken down into a checklist or a set of steps or can be kind of systematized in such a way that an AI or an artificial intelligence is going to be able to handle it in the reasonable near-term future, um, then that's not really the work that humans are best suited to do. So I do think that people need to move in the direction of the more complex, creative, nuanced work that requires judgment and creativity, not because um, you know no part of that will ever be done by by a machine, but because that's really where we have the most to offer right now, and where that you know symbiosis can be most interesting. So I think that's one piece of the puzzle. The other piece of the puzzle is just to recognize that we bring with us all of our humanity, both positive and negative, to whatever tools we use. And so, you know, it can it can be that we go from email, which is an inferior communications medium, to, you know, something that's slightly better, but we bring all the bad habits with us, right? We bring all the needs to, you know, the dopamine loops and need to check every five seconds and the addiction to always being on top of it and the, you know, lack of clear um, agreement about when we'll get back to each other and all these different sort of tendencies we'll just bring to the new technology. And so now we have the same thing, but on steroids, which in many ways I think is what the internet and technology has shown us. It's sort of been a mirror for ourselves lately that said, here's you at 11, <laughs> You know, yeah. And so I do think we have to check that. And I actually included an Aldous Huxley quote in the book about how, you know, technology, uh, technological progress is merely a means for man to destroy themselves faster. Right. Hmm. So if we don't, if we don't master those things, if we don't rethink our, our OS and our assumptions and really create new agreements about how we use technology and what we want it to do for us, then it's pretty easy for it to get away from us and to get out of hand. And I think we've seen that you know, in the political and economic spheres in the last couple of years. Well, you, you mentioned email, which is like one of my favorite topics to talk about in terms of the way it's it kind of grew and the way it's also continues to fail us, as you talked about. Let's take this as a case study. What can we learn from from how email kind of grew to encompass almost all of work and to now to the place where we feel like it's not really doing what it's supposed to do or it's doing what it's not supposed to do. It's being overextended in that way. So what, what are ways we can learn lessons from how organizations have adopted email and build new communication systems and then uh, apply that in other areas too? Well, I think, I mean, the big lesson with email, obviously, is that, you know, when you when you offer someone near instantaneous convenience of someone else's attention, um, they're, you know, they're going to take advantage of that. And obviously, it's a network effects game. So the more people send email, the more people get email, the more people send email. And we've seen that, actually. It's, right. you know, the number of emails sent every year keeps going up faster than the population. So there's there's definitely a pattern there that's not necessarily positive. I think you know it it has like I said it has some some failings as well. So you know when should something be an email? When should it be a phone call? That's a decision that we should make as an organization. When should it be? When should I stop by? And when should I send a note? Um, you know what makes a good email? Right, long, short, focused, unfocused, etc. What you know what's the good use of the medium? Um, it's hilarious to me, by the way, that you know people still graduate with business degrees and economics degrees and MBAs without really substantive training on how to use something like email, which makes right. up 90% of their working life from then on. Yeah. Um, so we're underskilled and kind of falling victim to the, to the norms of the system. And I believe that all software has an opinion, right? So whatever the software is built to do and whatever features it offers kind of sends us down a path. So if PowerPoint comes loaded with bullet points, we start communicating in bullet points, right? And it's not something we consciously think about. It just happens. So email, same thing. One of the 
downsides of email is that it does almost nothing to help you understand or prioritize what's going on. So an email that says that you've won a million dollars comes in the same inbox in the same order as an email that says, you know, you can now get 10 cents off of the new sock brand that you purchased two months ago, right? So there's no, um, there's no way to sense true priority and there's no way to sense true context. So you don't really have a sense of, you know, where an email fits in your workflow and your project flow, et cetera. And then on top of that, it's a pretty terrible um, information storage medium because no one else can search your inbox but you. So if we have a you know huge project where we learn a ton and there's all these emails that you know flurry around and then a new member joins our team, they are able to access none of that information, none of those files, none of that dialogue, none of that context. So it's sort of a bad information sinkhole, um, and it makes you predict before you even send the email who needs to get it, which is a prediction that might not be correct. Um, you know, when they need to read it and all that. And it sort of creates this, this cascading problem. So I think that, um, you know, it's certainly more convenient than sending a letter. But in a way, the trade-off is that it's maybe less deliberate. Um, it requires less thought ahead of time. And without the right hygiene in place, it just becomes a nightmare, which it is for, you know, the vast majority of people. Um, and I think it is time to, you know, move on from that to something a little bit more sophisticated, at least internally, where we have the power to do so. Yeah. Absolutely. So uh, you mentioned that as you are finding these outliers, so to speak, of, of companies that are really doing some amazing work and how they organize themselves, you said that, you know, it's really only one per industry or so that are out there. Somebody's doing something. Why do you think that it, these organizations kind of stay as an island unto themselves? And it's not something that somebody sees that they're like, wow, I need to, to apply that in my organization that just spreads like a virus. Why, why is it so contained? It's a great question, and it's one I sit with a lot. I mean, I think on the one hand, um, we're, we're just in early days here, so they just haven't bumped into each other. In fact, a lot of the cases that I looked at in the book aren't even aware of some of the other cases that do things very similarly to them. So it's some, it's it's emerging, um, and I think that's a piece of it. I also think that um, you know, in, in some cases, if you're the first to move in this direction in a category, it can be quite a competitive advantage, so you end up attracting talent that's attracted to those ideals. You end up attracting leaders that are attracted to those ideals. So I think that's that's an interesting kind of constraining factor. Um, it does require power holders to have a kind of an epiphany about a new kind of control and a new kind of shared power um, that can meet their needs and then some, but it's, an, it's definitely a major ego shift. And I think that that might just be rare. Um, so I think that's part of it. And I think, you know, these stories don't often spread as fast. I mean, it's much more interesting to read about, you know, the hot new startup on the cover of the magazine and how much money they raised and how rich they're going to be um, than it is to read about how one team messed with their meeting structure for six months and made it better, you know? Yeah. It's, it's meaningful to them, but it's not necessarily, you know, a red hot off the press kind of story. So I think some of this is undertold. So you mentioned uh, in the book that at an early part in your career, you couldn't help but look at all these big organizations and just feel that, you know, big is bad. Eventually, a company grows to a point where they just cannot handle these types of things. And there's going to be these inefficiencies. There's going to be these these things that make for bad uh, bureaucracy. How has your perspective changed? Do you still feel like that? Or how is it nuanced? So I think in, in general, left to your own devices, that's still true. I mean, I think if you, if you just let something grow and scale in the midst of this economic and social operating system, you will inherit bureaucracy over time. Um, but I do think it's possible now to, to, you know, to avoid that. And I've seen cases of, you know, 10,000, 50,000, 100,000 people where they really have done a pretty profound job of, of avoiding that or digging their way out. 
Um, one of the ways they do it is by not acting like one big monolithic thing. So, you know, similar to way, the way you'd think in, in application work to have something more modular, um, you know, the organizations are the exact same way. When they decentralize, when they create, you know, tribes, pods, cells, whatever you want to call it, of, you know, 10 to 100 people who are operating fairly independently, creating something of value to another pod of people, whether that be customers on the outside or customers on the inside, um, and there's a kind of a marketplace model in place, that um, that seems to work pretty darn well. And, and the reality is that the organization as a whole starts to look more like a market, and it has all the benefits that we see in the market, the things that we sort of are in love with as you know, capitalists, quote unquote, without looking at all the things about advanced capitalism that have gone awry. Just the basic idea of a market with lots of different players who have the freedom to play with each other in different ways and that the things that really work will spread. I think that's what you need. And that means um, thinking small and acting small. Even if you have, you know, 500 teams of 500, that's better than one company of 250,000. So tell us a little bit more about the book. How has it been received so far? Just released very recently. Any pushback you've received from it or what type of uh, response are you getting? Well, I think the response to the book so far, I mean, it's been about a week um, at the time of this recording. Um, The response has been exactly like the response to the work out in the world, which is a lot less pushback of, oh, this is nonsense. This is ridiculous. I don't buy these premise. Um, And more of a reaction of, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. But how? Like, Mm -hmm. you know, what, what should I do? What can I do? Depending on the role I hold, depending on the power I have, depending on my, you know, my own willingness, like, where do I start? What can I do? And so that's been that's been the reaction. And that's really positive because the answer is, you know, you can do a lot. We have we have a lot more control over the way we work than we think we do, even people at the edge. Um, and so there's there's a lot of ways, I think, to just get started and, and begin to do this this work that's so needed. Okay, so give me one question for someone who's in a let's just say a upper management CEO type level position where they really have the power to do about anything. What's one question they should be asking themselves as they reflect on these ideas? Well, the thing I always ask teams and then I ask leaders to ask their teams is what's stopping you from doing the best work of your life? Um, It's a simple question, but it's a powerful one because we're setting the bar at the best work of our lives, not okay work, not work that hits the goal, Um, but actually just saying, you know, are you doing the best work of your life right now? No? Okay. Why not? Like, what are you missing? Are you missing information? Are you missing support? Are you missing freedom? Um, You know, are you missing the right tools? Like, what, what is, what's getting in the way? And the cool part about asking that question is that there's always an answer. It's always top of mind. Um, and when you address the thing that they said first, there's going to be a new answer, right? Because there's always something that would unlock the next level of potential for us. So I, I advise leaders to just start with that question, ask teams, and then really listen um, and really, really create the space to, to have that discussion. And then for someone who's more in a middle management position where they, find out they feel locked into the bureaucracy, but they want to break out of it, what would you advise for them? I think the question there is, what can I change? Um, and the first answer I'm going to hear is nothing. But if we really push, if we really inquire, the answer is quite a lot, right? So maybe I can change how I meet with my colleagues. Maybe I can change what I do with my Sunday night to get ready for the next week. Maybe I can change how I use my inbox. Maybe I can change how I you know, communicate. I can change my stance on transparency. I can work in public. I can do a lot of things differently um, as an individual contributor. So the first question is just, what do I have power over? Because if I start there, maybe I'll start a pattern. Well, Aaron, it's been great to speak with you. I hope everyone gets out and read your book. A lot of great ideas in there. Obviously, they can find it anywhere books are sold, I'm assuming. But uh, how else can they stay in touch with you? 
Um, yeah, so the book uh, the book is up at bravenewwork.com and uh, the ready's at theready.com. And then, um, you know, we're all hanging out on Twitter and LinkedIn talking about this stuff uh, every day. So look for Aaron Dignan or The Ready on those platforms and we can have a conversation. Awesome. Aaron, thanks so much for being on the show. We appreciate it and look forward to interacting with you more. Yeah, likewise. Cheers. This has been the Work Minus Podcast. If you like what we're doing, go to workminus.com where you can see the show notes and a full transcript for every episode. You can also sign up for our newsletter where you'll get the latest progressive ideas about how you can build a better workplace. 